Hey, good morning, everybody. 11 o'clock service. Are you excited to be here this morning? Man, you know, we did a, a 9 o'clock service this morning, and normally we do a short 9 a.m. service, and then, you know, a long 10 a.m. service. Not a long, but a normal uh, 10 a.m. service. And I just got to tell you, man, it was great to have a full service at 9, but I'm almost nervous for you guys because I'm so pumped up to preach this message again that, like... <laughs> It might just come out a little crazy today, if that's okay. We're so glad you're here. Hey, if you're new, my name's Billy. Get to serve as the lead pastor of this church, this one-and-a-half-year-old church. You know, we like to say we're in the middle of a one-and-a-half-year-old move of God, and we are just seeing him do some great things. He's restoring marriages right now. He's healing sick bodies right now. We're seeing addicts get off drugs right now. We're seeing atheists actually be open. Maybe there is a God. Like, we're seeing movement. And I don't think the church's job is to tell you what to do. The church's job is to present to you who Jesus is, and then you got to make your decisions. If he is who he says he is, life would go a lot differently. And so uh, today, it's my heart just to open up God's word together, and uh, it should be good. If you have your Bible, let's go straight into it. We're in the book of Philemon today. Philemon, which you might have to go to your table of contents to find it. It's going to be right before the book of Hebrews. This is a one-chapter letter that we're going to take all this month to break down and apply to our lives. Uh, the book of Philemon is a wild story. And let me just catch you up to speed before we even get into it so you know what's going on. Uh, there's a really influential man named Philemon, and Philemon has a slave named Onesimus. Now, before you look at me crazy, in the ancient world, slavery has been going on, and there are actually parts of this world where it is still going on. And so when the Bible brings us up to something that's in our culture... It doesn't mean that God's okay with slavery, but it does mean that he's going to speak to the norm in the society at that time. Okay, God, uh, the greatest miracle God ever did besides the resurrection was rescue 2.5 million Hebrew slaves out of Egypt in one night. Um, you know, I just want to remind you, Jesus came to set the slave, the captive free. Uh, we believe that Jesus breaks chains. And so as we get into this tough topic today, I want you to understand what's actually happening. God is going to show us something. So Philemon has a slave, and the slave runs away. And while the slave runs away, he meets the Apostle Paul. The slave gets saved. This man, has a, he's a servant, belongs to his master. He gets saved while he runs away, and the Apostle Paul tells him, you need to go back. Okay, and it's in that spirit we pick up the letter of Philemon. And so let's pick it up, starting in verse 1. I want to say chapter 1, but there's only one chapter. So this is verse 1 of Philemon. Let's read together. Here reads the word of the Lord. It says, Paul, a prisoner for Christ Jesus, and Timothy, our brother, to Philemon, our beloved fellow worker, and Aphia, our sister, and Archippus, our fellow soldier, and the church in your house. And so Philemon has a church in his house. We think Aphia is his wife. We think Archippus is his son. This is a family matter. They're all getting together, and they read this letter from Paul. Verse 4. Verse 3, excuse me. Grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I thank my God always when I remember you in my prayers because I've heard of your love and of the faith that you have towards the Lord Jesus and for all the saints. And I pray that the sharing of your faith, Philemon, may become effective for the full knowledge of every good thing that is in us for the sake of Christ. For I have derived much joy and comfort from your love, my brother, because of the hearts of the saints that has been refreshed through you. I want to title this message this morning, first message in the series, uh, I want to title this message, The Runaway Christian. The Runaway Christian. I want to bring us up to speed on some things maybe in your life you've been running away from. 
and uh, how God has not given us a spirit of fear, but a spirit of how to have a healthy confrontation. Aren't you glad you came to church? Let's pray. Father, help us today. In Jesus' name, amen, amen. No time for a long prayer. Turn to somebody next to you and say, stop running. If they didn't smile, turn to somebody else and say, you for sure are running. You are for sure running. Ladies and gentlemen, uh, I want to confess something to you right at the start of our time together. Um, I am 33 years old, going on 34, but I have an intense fear of spiders. Yes, spiders. Don't like spiders. Don't look at me like I'm crazy. You know what these things are, okay? They walk around this parts like never before. Um, you know, I, I don't necessarily know if I'm afraid of like what a spider might do to me. I'm the type of person that's afraid if I let a spider get away, I overthink where is that spider? Where did he go? I can't go to sleep. And so like this happened to me recently. You know, I was outside and I opened up our trash can and there was just like this big spider. You know, you weren't there, so it was this big, Okay. It was probably more like this big. But, you know, there was this spider there, and I had a moment where I opened the trash bin. And have you ever done this? You come around a corner, you open something, and you see a spider, and it's like the first thing you do is like, whoa. Like, first thing I did was like, whoa, like jumped. And I took a couple steps back, and, and, and whether it's in the dining room, the bedroom, the bathroom, wherever I see a spider, you know, first thing I do is I grab my shoe. And right away, like, I'm going to take this thing out. Because I know that if I don't kill this spider, it's going to make its way into my home, and it's going to kill my whole family. (laughs) Don't judge me. Okay, this is how I deal with spiders. And so recently, this happened where the spider was there, and and it was a big one, and I grabbed my shoe, and I'm like having this moment, you know, where I'm like, and and I go to hit it, but I wasn't really invested in the swing, and so I missed, and then it just scurried away. And the rest of the day, I was like, oh, gosh, that spider's around here somewhere. You know, I'm like checking around corners for it and stuff. And, and I think it's, it's, it's a lot of, like, like a lot of things in life. Like we know we need to deal with it and we know we need to confront it. And if we don't, it has the potential to scurry on into every other area of our life. You see, how I deal with spiders is how a lot of us deal with problems. We get worked up, we get freaked out, we jump back. And then if we don't make the right decision, that problem continues to linger and it continues to scurry around our head that we missed our moment to confront something. You know, as Christians, it's important you know this, we all have things we're gonna try to avoid sometimes. And, and I like to say it like this, just because Jesus has saved your soul does not mean that your mind is always completely free. Hear me, you can be saved in your heart and still be lost in your thinking. You can say, I'm a Christian, I believe, but anytime a problem surfaces like me and that spider, you almost hesitate. What should I do? What should I say? How should I respond? Here's the principle for the whole series this month. You will never conquer what you can't confront. You cannot conquer something unless you have the audacity, unless you have the boldness and the courage to confront it. Now, this can be everything, you know, from a long lost relative that you've got a grudge with for 10 years to the person you live with in your own bed. You know what I mean? Like this can be something that you need to confront today or it might be something that God starts stirring on your heart saying you might want to confront this later. Great quote by George Brimhall. He says, if you avoid difficult things, great things will avoid you. I'm at a season of this right now as a dad. My daughter is two and a half, coming up on three soon. And, you know, we're potty training and we're getting rid of the pacifiers and we're getting rid of all the little toys. And, you know, there was one time where she was calling for her pacifier and and I'm like, baby, it ain't bedtime. 
there's no passies unless it's bedtime. You know what I mean? Like, and she's like, no, I can't. I need it. And she was like, I need it. I can't. And, and so we're doing this whole thing now where we're starting to tell her, Addie, you can do hard things. Okay? You can do hard things. And, and she'll say like, I can't do this. I need my pacifier to help me. Like, I need it. I'll need it. And I'll go, no, no, you can do hard things. You can do hard things. Dada, I can do hard things. I can do hard things. I could do hard things. And now every time she deals with something, she wants to rely on her pacifier. She starts telling herself, I can do hard things. Turn to somebody next to you and say, you can do hard things. You can do hard things. Maybe you're not relying on a pacifier to get you through it, but you're relying on some disheartening stuff. You're relying on some anger. You're relying on an addiction. You're relying on a dysfunctional relationship. We won't conquer our problems until we have the boldness to confront them. Makes me think of what the writer of Ecclesiastes once said. Chapter 11, verse 4, this is the Living Bible. He says, if you wait for perfect conditions, you'll never get anything done. The ESV says, if a farmer waits for the right weather to sow, he will never reap a harvest. So, so if you continually know you need to deal with something, but you keep waiting for all the stars to align, eventually you're never going to deal with it. Can, can I help some people today? I feel like preaching, man. The reason why your present gets so jacked up sometimes is because there's undealt with hurt from the past. And hurt that goes undealt with will traumatize you in the present. It'll, it'll freeze you. It'll, it'll, I, don't, I might get hurt again. I might get hurt again. I want to encourage you this morning. God is not afraid of your past. He's already paid for it. The question is, have you truly moved on from the mistakes you've made? I think there's a big demon in this area, and I believe in demons, believe in all that dark stuff, but when I say there's a demon, I mean like there's a big giant that needs to be dealt with in Chautauqua County, and that big giant is shame. Shame. Ten years ago, you had the abortion, and you believe in Jesus now, and you're living right, but you can't go a day without experiencing his forgiveness. Or maybe you, you know, did some horrible things early on in your life. Maybe 30, 40 years ago, you did some things that still pop up in your head sometimes. Or maybe just last week, we were doing something. And now you're looking back saying that wasn't the right move. We all make mistakes. But a mature Christian knows how to own their mistakes and move forward from their mistakes. Yeah? John Maxwell, he has a great thing where he says, failing forward is better than failing backwards. What does he mean? It's okay to fail as long as you're failing at the right things as long as you're failing and keeping your momentum going forward. So yeah, I had a rough week this week, but guess what? Today's the day of salvation. Yeah, 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 but yesterday you don't understand. The Bible says his mercy's new today. And so rather than living from the pain from yesterday, this month, we're gonna be people that know how to confront things in a healthy way. Someone say healthy. healthy. You, you ever gotten into a good argument with somebody and they're just really good at arguing? Like as they're talking, like they just start pulling all these thoughts together. And like, like when me and I, my wife argue, because we're humans, we do argue. Okay, when we start arguing, I, I, have, to, I have to make sure that I'm not just imposing the fact that I'm a speaker into the argument. You know what I mean? So it's easy for me to come up with words and come together with a thought and put it all together. On the spot, I can't just push that onto my wife. Okay, I have to be somebody that in a healthy way confronts what I'm doing wrong owns my responsibilities, takes to God the things that are not going wrong in her. And that's when we become healthy people. We start with ourselves. We address what we can address. And then we move forward. I feel there's a word for somebody. You can't change what happened. Can't change it. 
It already happened. You've already made the decision. You've already gone there. Whatever it is your thing is, we can't change what happened, but we can change what we do with what happened. We can change with how we move forward in life. So with all that in mind, let's go back to Philemon and let's look at verse one again and get a better understanding of what's going on, okay? Because we have three main characters I wanna focus on today. There's the Apostle Paul, there's a man named Philemon, and then there's Onesimus. When you keep reading Philemon, you learn that Onesimus actually stole from Philemon and ran away from his home. And while he was on the run, he meets Jesus, gets saved, and the Apostle Paul tells him, you need to go back. Today, we're going to take the position of Onesimus more than we are the position of Philemon. Next week, we'll talk about Philemon, and we'll talk about how do we welcome people that hurt us. We'll talk about how do we let people back into our lives after they've betrayed us. Next week, we'll be like Philemon, and we'll do, what do we do for when someone from my past comes back into my life and is different? How do I treat them? We'll deal with that next week. This week, though, we are Onesimus. This week, we have all run away from something. We all have things that we have not dealt with. And so from this letter, we're going to try to learn how do we confront the things in our past in a healthy way and move forward. Okay, are you with me today? Just want to make sure you're here. Okay, let's go back. Philemon 1. It says, Paul, a prisoner for Christ Jesus, and Timothy, our brother, to Philemon, our beloved fellow worker. What you should know about Philemon is when you read Colossians, it seems that Philemon is a leader at the church of Colossae. And so uh, one of your letters in your New Testament is from Paul written to a church called Colossae. And we believe Philemon was one of the leaders of that church, and he actually had a church in his home. We believe he was an influential man, probably got saved under the ministry of Paul, and, and lo- Jesus has changed his life. Like, he loves Jesus now. Yeah, like, oh, yeah, Onesimus got away, whatever. It's, it's all behind me, though, Paul. I, I love Jesus. I want to hear what you have to say. And what Paul's going to say is, if you love Jesus, that means you love the people that hurt you, too. And what Paul's getting ready to tell Philemon is, hey, bro, if your life has really been changed, it'll show when you welcome back Onesimus. Because everyone wants to talk that talk until it's time to actually welcome somebody who hurts you. And everyone wants to preach grace when they're the ones that need it, but no one wants to preach it when they got to give it. That's our problem in America. We demand grace from people, but yet when they hurt us, we don't want to show it. And and, and i just like to challenge you today without imposing on you. I think that's a little bit of all of us. We are quick to get it, but not so quick to give it. And today we're reading about Philemon, whose slave, his servant, if you prefer that word, he ran away. He's gone. And he's left to deal with the pieces. So let's pick it up again. Paul starts off by saying, Paul, a prisoner for Christ Jesus. I could preach that right there. Why would he start his letter like this? Like if I'm the apostle Paul and I got you know, radically saved. I encountered Jesus. I'm now preaching the gospel. We're getting Gentiles saved. I mean, Paul at one point actually corrects the apostle Peter. Like you can read about it. Paul goes to Peter and is like, Peter, you're off, bro. Peter, the one that walked with Jesus. If Paul is doing all that stuff, how come he doesn't talk about that in his intro? I'm Paul, the one that is starting the New Testament church. I'm Paul, the one that actually heard the voice of Jesus in the flesh. I'm Paul, the one that corrected Peter. I've got some status. No, he says, I'm not going to connect with you through my status. He says, I'm Paul, a prisoner. I'm going to connect with you through my pain. People that really practice Christianity aren't afraid of pain. 
We don't avoid pain. If anything, the maturity of our faith is shown in how we manage the pain and how we manage the tension and how, yes, we're not fully healed, but we believe God can do it. And yes, we're not empty and depressed, but yet we still want to be filled. There is that oxymoron of our faith where it almost doesn't make sense at times. Paul says, I'm going to start by saying, I am a prisoner. And notice he doesn't say, because of Christ. What does he say? I'm a prisoner for Christ. I belong to him. Everyone wants to be free today. I'm free from everything. No, no, no. The question is not what you, are you free from? The question is what are you free for? Why have you gotten set free? Just so that you don't have anybody that could tell you what to do? Are you free now just because you run your own life and you control it? Or has Jesus freed you for a purpose and for a reason and to bring light to people? I say it like this, what God saved you for is greater than what he saved you from. What he saved you from is big, especially some of us in this room. He saved us from a lot. He saved us from a life of pain. He saved us from sickness. He saved us from addiction. He saved us from, from loneliness, isolation, depression. That's all amazing. He saved me from cancer. Hallelujah. But guess what? What he saved you for is more important than what he saved you from. How do I know? He wouldn't have saved you unless it was for something. He, he wouldn't have given his son unless it was for you to do something with your life. Imagine if you want to accept Jesus, lift your hand, and you, open, you close your eyes, you pray the prayer, Jesus, I want to know you. Thank you for saving me, paying for my sin. And I put my hand down, and, and then it goes, and the pastor says, okay, open your eyes. And you're like, oh, I'm still here. Like, I thought I was just getting saved so I could go to heaven. No, you got saved, and then you opened your eyes, and you're still here. It's because God has saved you for something saved you for a purpose. The apostle Paul says, I've been saved to be a prisoner for Christ Jesus. And then he goes, I'm with Timothy, our brother, to Philemon, our fellow beloved worker. And then he names Aphia and Archippus uh, and the church in their house. Really quickly, here's the characters from the story. We talked about Paul. He's the imprisoned apostle. We talked about Philemon. He is kind of the main person receiving the letter. We also get this woman brought up. Her name's uh, Aphia. And we think that she's probably Philemon's wife. Because in ancient days, the, the woman, the wife of the household would be responsible for all the servants. And so if a servant got away, it's important Aphia hears this letter too. So Paul mentions her. And then the other one he mentions is Archippus, which uh, we think is Philemon's son. You can actually read about Archippus. He gets named in the letter to the Colossians. Like his name just pops up. And so we know this was an influential leader. But again, make no mistake, our focus today is the man Onesimus. And this is Philemon's slave. Uh, Paul actually uses the same word, slave, to describe himself in another letter. When he writes, he says, Paul, not a prisoner for Christ, but he says, Paul, a slave to Christ. The translation is a bond servant to Christ, meaning I can't do anything else but obey him. I'm ruined for anything else. You know what I mean? I was talking to somebody recently, and they were like, man, you would have been like a great like a presenter of like technology or like, you know, anytime there's a new product, like you would be great to go up there and like, you just talk so well. And I'm like, bro, I'm ruined for anything else but the gospel. Like, I can go and try to sell cars and probably get everyone to buy a car. I don't want to. I'm ruined for the gospel. That, 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 that's what a Christian ought to be. I can't do anything else. It's like a square peg. It just doesn't fit. You know what I mean? It's just something's, something's off here. Something's missing here. And so when we embrace that, we realize God has saved me for something. I have a reason. I have a purpose. And so from this letter... I want us to do a couple things. 
we're gonna draw some principles about how do we confront things from our past. But I think we also must realize that this letter is a personal letter to a man and his family. It's not like the book of Colossians. If you read the book of Colossians, you know, four or five chapters, and it's written to a whole group of people. This is Paul writing to one man to encourage him and to show him all the great things Jesus has done. But make no mistake, he's about to set it up and ask something big of Philemon. You ever had to correct somebody and you do like a compliment sandwich is what I call it? You're like, hey, I just want to tell you, you're like really awesome. And like, we're so thankful you're here. And like, we wouldn't know what we would do without you. Hey, but stop doing that. Stop doing that. That's not helpful. Okay. I love you. And then you end with a positive. I love you. I believe in you. I'm here for you. That's what Paul's doing. He's starting off by telling Philemon, hey, man, I love you. You're a great church leader. Can you imagine Philemon reading the letter originally? Because this is how people don't read the Bible. They expect someone on a stage to tell them instead of they themselves getting in the story. So we don't have iPhones. You know, if anything, someone has ran to Philemon's house, knocked on the door. It probably would have been someone that was with Onesimus. Someone knocks on the door and they go, here, this is from Paul. Philemon opens it and he starts reading it. He's a church leader. And he goes, oh, the apostle Paul writing to me? Wow, thank you. And Paul says, I've heard about your faith. Oh, thank you, the apostle. I thank you so much. I, I, I wanna tell you about your wife and your son. Oh yes, they're right here with me. We're serving your church well. And he goes, everyone's been encouraged by you. I'm just so blessed by you, Philemon. He goes, yes, yes, yes. And then he gets to that line where it says, oh, by the way, Onesimus is with me. Can you imagine what Philemon felt in that moment? Just like right now, you felt the shift. Just the heart would have dropped. Onesimus, the man that stole from me and ran away? And Paul keeps writing. He goes, yeah, he met Jesus, just like you. And this is where many of us get tempted. When the people we don't like find the God we love, how do we welcome them? Because let's be honest, there's people I don't like. There's people you don't like. God didn't call us to like everybody. He called us to love everybody. Are you with me? So I ain't got to like you. I got to love you. And there are plenty of times where the person you don't like will fall in love with your God. And they'll be like, I'm a Christian now. I'm getting better. And you'll, you'll go, hmm, yeah, hmm, you, hmm. It's, it's in that spirit Paul's speaking directly to us. And he's saying, if you say you love Jesus, it'll be seen by how you welcome outsiders. One of the best testimonies gospel has gotten in our church is the moment I walk in, I feel welcomed. And I can't take credit for that. You know what I mean? That's the people of this house that say, I've seen too many churches keep people on the outside. I've seen too many churches say, hey, you don't look like us, stay over there. Hey, you're not really living freedom. You stay over there until you're ready to get free. And, and, and I just think how we love Jesus is seen in how we love people. So don't tell me you love him and you know everything about him, but you can't welcome one of his kids. Like you're welcome in this house. Why? Because Jesus welcomed me into his. And what he's done for me radically changes what I want to do for others. Now, think about this. Paul has to speak well of Onesimus in a way where it's like, yes, he's my new brother, but yes, there are some things he did wrong. And I want to show you what Paul actually thought about Onesimus. Let's go to Colossians chapter 4 real quick, starting in verse 7. This is the last part of his letter. And remember, Colossians and Philemon, they're happening in the same area. Philemon lives in the Colossae area. He's a leader within the Colossian church. And in the letter to the Colossians, here's what Paul says. Tychicus, that's a cool name. Uh, Tychicus will tell you all about my activities. He's a beloved brother. He's a faithful minister and a servant in the Lord. I've sent him to you for this very purpose that you may know how we are and he may encourage your hearts. 
Watch this, verse nine. And with him is Onesimus, our faithful and beloved brother, who is one of you. So at this point, the Colossian people would have heard about Onesimus. They would have heard about Philemon's servant ran away. We get our letter from Paul and he just mentioned Onesimus. What? He said, he's a slave though. He's a slave. This is ridiculous. You know, how is he having that kind of stuff? And I just, again, want to remind you, God's view of slavery is very different than everyone else's view of slavery. God rescues captives. Every seven years, there was a law in the Old Testament that says if you own slaves, every seven years, you would have to let them go free, okay? There's a lot of things people don't think when they read the Bible. So there's, he's mentioning Onesimus. And look, he doesn't say Philemon's servant, Philemon's slave, Philemon, the runaway. He, you know, Onesimus isn't the runaway in Paul's mind. What does he call him? Our faithful, beloved what? Brother. When people walk through our doors, they ain't the runaway. That's our brother. That's our sister. I know they're coming in broken. I know we all come in with a little baggage. You know, we all come in carrying some stuff. But how we see broken people really shows us what our faith is made of. You know, I, I, I don't see addicts. I see sons and daughters looking for a dad. You know, I don't see promiscuous men that just sleep around with a bunch of women. I see a son that's looking for a dad. Are you, are you following me? A lot of times we want to address the, 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 the symptom and we want to say, well, this is sin. This is sin. We never go to the root problem. We say, well, look what he's doing. And I think people of God need to go, well, look who he is. If you get caught up in what he's doing, you might never care about who he is. And so come to me, you know, church members will be like, did you hear what she's doing? Did you hear what he's doing? It's like, okay. It's great. Yeah, okay, thanks for gossiping. You know what I mean? Like, I love them. So what they're doing isn't going to change how I see them. We need to get them to see themselves that way. You should sit with me? Okay. So ultimately, Philemon needs to see Onesimus like Paul does, a faithful and beloved brother. And next week, we'll deal with that because the ask is going to come. Philemon is eventually going to hear from Paul, you need to welcome him and not as a slave, as a brother. And that's, that's hard when someone has hurt you. And next week, we'll work on that. It'll be great. But ultimately, what's going to happen soon is Onesimus is going to have to confront his past. How could Paul ask Philemon of that? Well, let's look at verse 17. It says this, so if you consider me your partner, receive him as you would receive me. So Paul is telling Philemon, hey, bro, like if we're in this together, I want you to receive him like you would receive me. This is a gospel play on words here. This is the gospel, okay? Because when God, the Father, welcomed you, he didn't receive you like he receives you. He received you like he received Jesus. And because of Jesus's perfect death, we are welcomed as, as if it was on our account. Does this make sense? So the Paul, Paul's gonna ask something big, but notice the language. If you consider me your what? Partner, partner. Not if you consider me your friend or your church member. Hey, we go to the same church. It's all good. He says, hey, man, we're, you're my partner. The Greek word here is koinonia, meaning divine fellowship. So koinonia, when he says, you're my partner, he's saying, we're not just at the same church. God has divinely knit us together. And, and I don't know how to explain it other than the way that Jesus saved my life is how you were brought into my life. That same way, Philemon. He's preparing Philemon for something because we're not gonna do hard things until we realize what Jesus has done for us, okay? He says, I want you to receive him like you received me. That doesn't make any sense. 
He's a servant. He's less than in our common society. How could it be that Paul wants me to see somebody who's beneath me as my equal? And I just want to tell you again, the spirit realm, the Christian realm is different than the material realm. Galatians chapter 3 says it like this. When he is writing about the, the gospel, he says, there's neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is no male or female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. So the Galatian church, they were Christians, but they started doing old religious traditions to try to save them. So they heard about the gospel and they're like, we love the gospel. And they're like, but you still need to be circumcised if you wanna get saved. Or we love the gospel, but you can't eat pork if you wanna be saved. And so Paul's kind of correcting them. He's like, guys, no, no. It's not like gospel and works. You know, it's, it's not like, you know, Catholic church's salvation equals grace plus works. You know what I mean? No, it's like you're saved by grace. And now that you've been saved by grace, the gospel levels the playing field. So let's go back to verse 28. There's neither Jew nor Greek. These are the, the, these are the two types of people that were getting saved in those days, Jews or non-Jews. We would call them Gentiles. And Paul says, in Jesus, they're equal. Look what he says next. There's neither slave nor free. So, so I don't care if the world says servants and slaves are underneath people at those times. In God's eyes, they've always been equal. How do I know? Joel 2, it talks about God's spirit being poured out on us, right? God's going to pour spirit out. Sons and daughters are going to prophesy. You know, old men will dream dreams. Your young men will see visions. And then there's one line where it says, even the servants and slaves I will pour my spirit on. So I'm not just going to bless people that have positions. I'm blessing anybody that's open, anybody that's willing, anybody that says, God, I want to be used by you. It's not about your ability, friend. It's about your availability. Are you open for him? So it's neither Jew nor Greek, neither slave nor free. How about this? There's no male or female. What, what, what does this mean? This is not non-binary. Don't get nervous, okay? This is simple as man and female, they're equal in God's eyes. And if I could just walk this line really quick, you know what I mean? Because everyone always asks us, what's your stance on pastors, women pastors, women preachers? Okay, we hold a stance that says women definitely can be pastors. The lead pastor of a church should be a man. And that's from the scriptures. And I would love to talk to you about it but listen, it's not because women are less than, or else that scripture wouldn't be true. So how can the Bible say, I don't want a woman to do this, I want a woman to do that? The Bible also says, I don't want a man to do this, I want a man to do that. How could we have gender roles in God's eyes, but not in the world? And it's because the world sees gender roles as a question of value. The world says, oh, a woman can't do something, that must mean she's less than. And it's like, who said that? God says there's no male or female in his sight. Men can do just what women can do. Women can do just what men can do. We've been given things to help us see that. Ultimately, though, we think, well, some are higher than others. And I want to tell you, man, the gospel levels the playing field. It doesn't matter how far you've come, where you're coming from. It doesn't matter where, where, what, what you're getting out of. There's truth in his word for you. Okay, you still with me? Okay, so what do we got to deal here then? Because I think, uh, like I said, next week we'll deal with Philemon. This week we're Onesimus. This is the question I want to ask you with as we kind of come to uh, the last few minutes. How do I confront the mistakes from my past? If, if you are here and you've wronged somebody, you've hurt somebody, something maybe you've made a mistake in the past, how do I confront that in a healthy way? Because I'll never conquer what I don't confront. Now, I'm not talking about things that are already dealt with and you've already moved on or you've made forgiveness with people. You don't need to go back and rehash that. You know, in the first service, I said, how do I confront my mistakes? 
And someone said, well, I thought I was supposed to move on from my mistakes. And it's like, yes, you should. But I think you can tell when your mistakes are still haunting you. Yeah. I think we've all done that. We've all laid in bed at night and gone, I can't believe I said that. Or why did it go that way? Or how come I didn't do something? Or should I have done more? I want to talk to you today about how do you confront your mistakes, okay? Four quick things that will practically help you start somewhere. Number one, how do I confront my mistakes? Let your foundation of thought be your new life in Christ. What do I mean? Before you even start thinking about your past, don't forget you're a new life in Christ now. Some of us here today, we made mistakes before we met Jesus. And it's easy sometimes to put all that guilt and that shame on you that you forget Jesus already took all that for him on the cross. So, so let's not crucify Jesus again because we're trying to save ourselves from our mistakes. He has died once and for all. Let that be the foundation of where you start. Yes, I've made mistakes. Yes, I've struggled. Yes, I'm not where I should be. But man, thank God I'm not where I used to be. Come on, can't that be our motto? I'm not where I should be. I'm the lead pastor of our church, and I'm not where I need to be. There's more that God has, but thank God I'm not where I used to be. Thank God I've come out of the lies I used to believe. Thank God I'm at least going in the right direction. At least we're moving forward. And so let your foundation of thought be your new life in Christ. Verse three, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Grace for your past mistakes. Peace for how you're dealing with it in this moment. Okay, there's grace to pay for our mistakes, but what we need is peace to live in spite of those mistakes. I'm preaching this morning. There are things that have stopped us because we've never dealt with them. An undealt with past will paralyze your present. And when you stop dealing with the past, you're like, I just don't wanna avoid it. I just wanna forget it. But you never confront it. You will feel paralyzed at times in your past. Ephesians chapter four says it like this, since you have heard about Jesus and have learned the truth that comes from him, throw off your old sinful nature and your former way of life, which is corrupted by lust and deception. Look at the imagery. He says, you know, that bitterness you've been wearing, you know, that sexual promiscuity you've been wearing, you know, that desire just for everyone to give you what you, that thing you're wearing. Look at the language. He says, don't just take it off. The Bible says we should throw it off. And, and what happens is many of us, we've been in churches, or this is just our view of Christianity, where we were taught our, own, our old former way of life, we're just going to kind of lay it aside for now. And Paul's saying, no, no, throw it off. But what happens is when you don't fully deal with your past, whether it's an addiction, a habit, something bad, you go back to it without noticing you're doing it. And you might not put it on the same way, but like your Christianity easily just, add, you just add a little accessory to it. And you're like, my old former way of life, I'm not wearing it like I used to, but it's still around you. Like you're not the one doing the drugs, but you're still hanging out with people that do. You're not the one gossiping, but you keep hanging around people that do. And so although you took it off, it doesn't mean it's completely gone. He says, throw off your old sinful nature. So, so when you start thinking about what you did back then, Make sure you remember that was a different person than today, okay? We're gonna accept it. We gotta embrace it. I get all that stuff. But most people don't start in the right place. They start from such a shame and a guilt. I've had leaders in our church come to me and say, you know, I, I think you should have done this differently. Or, wow, I really felt this. Or, hey, you said you're gonna do this. You weren't gonna do that. And as a leader, you know, typically we just wanna kinda go like, well, it was because of this or that and this and that. And as long as my name's clear, we're good. 
And I think there is such a thing as saying, um, I'm sorry, that was wrong. I'm owning that. I'm going to see that better next time. But I'm not going to sit here and beat myself up about who I am because I made one mistake. Is this, is this good? Healthy. Okay, so I got to take, got to start there. Got to make sure the foundation's right. Secondly, now I can take responsibility. How do I confront my mistakes? I start in the right place. And then I got to take responsibility and I actually accept the mistakes I've made. I, I don't sit here and just try to brush them off. And when I do it, it's not as bad, but when you do it, it's the worst. You know, it's like, have you ever done that? You ever judge somebody from their actions, but then you judge yourself off your intentions? Chew on that one for a second. I judge them for what they did, but when I do something, I judge myself by what I intended. Well, I didn't mean that. They did. I didn't mean to do that. And no, man, the best place you can be as a Christian is take responsibility for your actions, okay? I can't change the situations that have already happened, but I can change how I speak about them. And yeah, that wasn't my best day. Yeah, you know, I'm going to do better next time. Yeah, you know what? I'm choosing to move forward, though. And, and there is such a way to own what you did wrong while still moving forward. Okay, verse 11, Paul writes this very briefly. He says, Onesimus hasn't been of much use to you in the past, but he's very useful to both of us now. He's reminding Philemon, he's saying, hey, bro, just so you know, Onesimus, I knew that he wasn't that good before, but he's owned up to some things. And since he's been in my care, we've talked about grace. And we've talked about how he needs to accept what he did wrong. And so that's why Onesimus, you got saved. It's not just like leave your old life behind. I want you to go back now and accept what you did wrong, Onesimus. It's the hardest part for us, isn't it? To see the people that we've hurt, to be confronted with somebody that maybe there's tension with. I think the more that you follow Jesus, the more you realize life is not always about solving problems. Sometimes it's just about managing tension. And there's always something going on, but what's important is it's not messing me up. We want to be people who accept our mistakes and take responsibility. Susan Jeffers says this, taking responsibility means never blaming anyone else for something you're being, doing, having, or feeling. You really want to take responsibility? Okay, no one else is to blame then for what you're feeling, doing, having, or feeling. There might be some real things they've done. There might be some things that you say, well, I only did that because they hurt me. Or, you know, I only cheated because he cheated first. And, and we've rationalized this thing in our head instead of realizing no one's to blame except me. Okay, if you're getting beat up in a relationship, you're never designed to be someone's punching bag. You're never supposed to have a man put his hands on you. But for some reason, you keep going back, thinking like, oh, he'll change. He'll change. No, it's time to take responsibility and say, this isn't working for me. I, I know I did some things that might have enabled this behavior. I know that I haven't said anything this whole time, and maybe this is okay. I don't know why I'm out here. I'm just going. Okay, just, I, I know I might have done something for this, but at the end of the day, I need to take responsibility for me. Even as, even as a Christian, friend, no one's responsible for your soul and your soul's health except you. If you're not being fed... And you're like, oh, I'm not getting fed spiritually. Go find something to eat. You know, my daughter, she's two. When she's hungry, she cries. Nah, nah, I'm hungry. You know, when I'm hungry, I go make a sandwich. It's the same spiritually. I'm not being fed. I'm not being fed. Go feed yourself. Take some responsibility for your spiritual life. Get in your prayer closet. Listen to a sermon. Google search a Bible verse for all I care. But we've got to take responsibility. 
So as the pastor of this church, I got to grow. I got to hear from God. I got to have men and women in my life that I can learn from that make me want to go deeper with God because no one else is responsible for my soul's health except me. Are you with me? I get I'm a pastor and a shepherd and souls and all that, but guess what? I'm not doing all the hard work. If anything, I'm presenting the truth to you. You're the one that's got to wake up in the middle of the night when your kid is sick. You're the one that's got to deal with your family member. We'll, we'll be here for you as a church. I want you to hear this. But like, you're the one. You're the one that's got to say, where's my faith? It's three o'clock in the morning. I can't call Pastor Billy and tell him to preach at me. What do I do? That, that, that's, all, that's where my heart's coming from today. We ought to have a responsibility for our faith. Okay, number three, as I close, I also need to then apologize and ask for forgiveness. How do you confront your mistakes? Well, it's still, you know, there's such an art form to just saying sorry. That's how you know our world talks too much when people actually appreciate people saying sorry. Um, we have a lot of people that are making a lot of noise, but I think there's something supernaturally significant about when we resolve a conflict between someone else. Okay, this whole month, we're gonna talk about how to handle conflict with your brothers and sisters how to handle conflict with your spouse, how to handle conflict with fellow believers in a local church. Because if we can't confront it, we'll never conquer it, okay? And so when we start realizing we've wronged somebody, sometimes an apology seems like something we're like, ah, oh, that wouldn't make a difference. Or we think an apology is a small thing compared to the damage we did. So we've done so much damage to somebody, we won't say I'm sorry because we look at how much we've did and we're like, that's not gonna do anything. And I want to tell you, we apologize not because we want someone else to forgive us. We apologize because it's almost like a weight we're carrying until we finally release it. You know, sometimes this is dysfunctional and we push past people's feelings because we need to release our weight. And that's a separate teaching for a separate day. But a lot of times there's something on us, we just want to get it off our chest. Because when it's undealt with, it paralyzes you. Here's what Jesus said, Matthew chapter five. He tells this awesome, awesome sermon. Uh, Matthew five, six, and seven is all known as the Sermon on the Mount. It's just one long sermon, you know, with some great stuff in there. And here's what he says in verse 23 when he's talking about worship. He says, so if you are offering your gift at the altar and there you remember your brother has something against you, leave your gift at the altar and go. First be reconciled to your brother, then come and offer your gift. So in the temple days, you know, people would show up with their families and their, sacri their sacrifice. So it would be like, you come to the altar, there'd be a priest there, and you'd go, here's my turtle dove to pay for this week's sin. And then the priest would do the ceremony, and bam, and you would walk out forgiven. You know, aren't, aren't you glad we don't do animals anymore? Can you imagine, oh, here comes Jeff with his bull, you know what I mean, to pay, you know, for his last week, and here comes Giovanni with the turtle doves, and, you know, and, you know it's just like one of those things where that would be crazy. And so Jesus says, when you come to church and, and you're looking to be reconciled to God, if you have tension with your brother, go handle that first. That doesn't make any sense, doesn't it? You'd be like, well, wait a minute. I want to come talk to God. I just want to apologize to God. As long as God gets the apology, I'm better, right? Jesus says, no, because the way you love God is actually seen in how you love people. And sometimes we know we've made a mistake. We know we've wronged somebody our apologies come out so short or they come out so petty. We're like, ah, I'm sorry. You know, like two siblings when their parents tell you, you need to apologize to her. And you're just, I'm sorry. You know, just whatever. We do that as adults still. 
We reconcile relationships. We don't mean it. We just want to get rid of the tension. So we'll just say what people want to hear. Here's what G.K. Chesterton said. A stiff apology is a second insult. Yeah, yeah, I'm sorry. He would say, that's like a second insult. Why is that? Because the party that was injured does not want to be compensated because he's been wronged. He wants to be healed because he was hurt. So an apology, you know, you might have wronged somebody and they're out 50 bucks. Okay, 50 bucks is 50 bucks. Like, however you view 50 bucks, view 50 bucks that way. But what's more important is the dynamic between you and that person. Has that been restored? We'll just push past people when we're wrong, not realizing there's something that needs to be restored. Okay, and that leads me to my last thought for the day. Number four, if I wanna confront those things in my past, I need to then pray for personal restoration and then relational reconciliation. A lot of times we want the reconciliation of the relationship before we personally get restored as the one who did something wrong. If you have sinned and you have done something wrong and it's not been confronted yet, you need to be restored. Yeah, the person you hurt will get there. But before you can actually have a healthy relationship with them, you've got to be restored to a healthy individual first. You have to come to that point where you're like, okay, I forgive what happened, but have you really forgiven what you did? Many people think when they make, you know, make a mistake or they sin, as long as God knows about it, it's all good. And there's truth to this, okay? Let me show you what the Bible says. First John chapter one, it says, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. What a great scripture. If you have sinned, you can go to God and be restored. Amen, right? What's the Bible say? Confess it to him and you get forgiven. It's awesome. But how many know you can be forgiven in your heart but still be jacked up in your mind. And that's because there's two types of confession in the Bible. There's two types of ways to deal with your past that lead to two different results. Did you know this? Maybe I'm the only one excited. Okay, 1 John 1, if we confess our sins, he's faithful to forgive us. So if you go to God, you get forgiven. But let me show you what the Bible says in James 5, verse 16. Therefore, confess your sins, not to God, but to each other. And by doing it to each other, pray for each other so that you may be what? Healed. So I wanna reconcile this relationship. I want healing. Okay, have you been forgiven yet? Because if you get caught up in trying to fix them before you let God fix you, it's not gonna go well. So when I confess to him, I'm forgiven. But there's still tension when you see that person. You still get anxiety when you think of them and what the first interaction will be like. You still worry when you run into them somewhere and you think like, are they the same? Is am I the same? What's going on? That's because when you confess it to God, you're forgiven, but you don't get healed till you tell someone else. And that's why with everything I have, I believe that the church, we get together once a week, but throughout the week, we ought to be together, talking to each other, in groups together, working together, at school together, whatever it is. We need a fellow brother or sister that we don't just tell God everything to, but we tell them as well. I tell people like this, you know, not everyone in your life needs to know everything, but somebody in your life better know everything. If you don't have one person that knows everything about you, you are setting up to fail. I believe it that much.
If you don't have, I mean, I've got an accountability partner, you know, my friend Joseph, he knows exactly what my temptation is. He knows exactly where it would be. He knows exactly what to do if it happens. He knows where my, he's got my location on his phone. He calls me every Monday. We talk on Mondays about my message, how I'm feeling. Like I have accountability. So I want to make sure at least one person knows everything. My wife knows everything about me. If your spouse doesn't know everything about you, I would start asking the health of that relationship because that person knows you better than no one else knows you. And so, yes, I tell my wife when I'm wrong. Yes, I confess sin to my wife. Yes, I come before when I'm confused because forgiveness comes from him, but healing comes from each other. And when we talk about our sins and we encourage each other and we, we say, it's okay, the best is still ahead. It's okay, you're not done yet. God's not done with you yet. You just got through the hard part of apologizing. There's gonna be a greater moment ahead. You're gonna see the reconciliation. I believe he still does it, church. He restores and he reconciles. And so no matter who you've harmed, or maybe it's somebody that's not even here with us anymore, there's that thing in you. I wanna give you a chance to get that off your chest today. Just to realize, yeah, I've made mistakes. It's time to confront them now. And here's the best part. God restores what you've lost. He restores what I've lost. He is a restorer of the things that have gone. I was praying for you this week. And, um, you know, I, I, I prep a message each week. And that's, you know, message prep is great, study, all that stuff. But there comes a time in my week where the message starts to go from being prepped to being prayed. And usually like Tuesdays, Wednesdays, it's all prep. Thursday, Friday, Saturday, it's all prayer. And this week as I was praying, I felt like the Holy Spirit say, there's gonna be people that, that are feeling guilty because of the time that was lost. And because they've made mistakes and they have regrets, there's gonna be this thing in people there Sunday that goes, yeah, but the time's already gone. It's too late now. And I wanna show you what Joel chapter two says. I was reading this in my Bible and your faces came to my mind. It says this, the threshing floor shall be full of grain and the vats shall overflow with wine and oil. So in other words, there was a famine. It's all good now. And here's the promise of the Lord. And I will restore to you the years that the swarming locusts have eaten. In other words, the years that you wasted because of your mistakes, the years that your enemies came and took what belongs to you, I'm gonna restore those years. So like a parent that wasn't around their kid's life when they were growing up, you know, parents feel the need to kind of make up the time. Well, I wasn't around, so now I'm gonna show you how to be a man, or I wasn't around, and now I'm gonna teach you what a lady's like. And, 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 and at the same time, that's good, but make no mistake, only God can restore time. Only God can change that, that child's heart to go, oh, my mom, oh, my dad. No amount of work, no amount of effort from us restores time. All we're supposed to do is trust and believe that he's the one that's gonna do it.